0: Hey everyone, thanks for joining us online. I'm really excited to be here with you this morning, particularly because it is one of our Location Pastor Sundays, and one of my favorite things about the Orchard is that we have so many gifted pastors who you get to hear from and share specifically here on our online platform, and we usually let those guys kind of take turns doing the Location Pastor Sundays, but I'm excited today that I get to be the one to share with you what God has kind of laid on my heart, something that I I read a while back in my personal reading time, and it has just kind of stuck with me. I've shared some thoughts on this passage uh, with the staff, and I really wanted to kind of dig into it with you today. And it really revolves around the question, um, have you ever wanted to see God really move in your life? Now, I know that's a pretty obvious question. I'm sure that you have. I'm sure that you have wanted, that you want even now To see God really move in your life, maybe that is in your family, maybe there's some situations there with parents or kids or siblings, and you just want to see God move inside of your family. Maybe it's at your job, maybe you have some aspirations in your career, maybe there's some performance levels you're trying to hit, whatever, and you just really want to see God make a move there in your workplace. Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe you know you and a spouse or you and a significant other in a rough spot, and, and you're wanting to see God move and bring healing and help. Maybe it's with your finances. I don't know, but there's no doubt that every one of us wants to see God move in your life. And maybe right now, as you're watching this, there's somebody in your life, there's some place in your life where you just really desperately need to see a miracle. Well, I want to talk about that today. What it looks like when God moves in our life, and what I want to do is take us back to this passage of scripture that's really kind of captured my heart and my mind over the last few months and look at an event in the history of the nation of Israel where God showed up powerfully on behalf of his people and I know that he did this over and over again throughout the Old Testament, but lately it's this text that has really stuck out in my mind so if you have your Bibles or your app, go with me to Joshua chapter ten and when you go to Joshua chapter 10, camp out there, because I'm going to meet you there. Let me kind of back up, though, and give us some context that leads us to Joshua chapter 10. See, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, had been enslaved in the nation of Egypt for 400 years. And under the leadership of Moses, God led the nation of Israel out of Egypt and was leading them to the promised land. However, when the nation of Israel came to this promised land that God was giving to them freely, they got scared. They doubted whether God would be able to drive out the inhabitants of the land. And so because of their failure to enter into the land that God had given them, God had the nation of Israel wander around literally in circles in the desert for 40 years. And during that 40 years, they had to learn how to trust and obey God. Those who were in leadership, the elders of the people, began to die off. A new generation, 40 years later, was raised up in the nation. And a new leader, not Moses, but now a man named Joshua, kind of took command of the people. And what happens is after Moses and the previous generation has passed away, after the new generation has come and Joshua's taken command, Joshua leads the nation of Israel to cross the Jordan River and to enter into the promised land that God was giving the people. But a part of him giving the land to the people was that it was going to be up to them to drive out the inhabitants of the land and to take possession of this gift that God had given their forefather Abraham generations earlier. And so we see in the early chapters of the book of Joshua that the nation of Israel has a conquest in Jericho where they march around this walled cities, blow trumpets, and the Lord brings the walls of the city down. They see the nation of Israel go into the city of Ai and suffer defeat only to find out it's because there was sin inside the camp. And once the nation of Israel purifies themselves and makes themselves right with God, they go back in and they conquer Ai. And so here's the This huge camp of the nation of Israel moving into the promised land, conquering cities, taking possession. And that's where we come to in Joshua chapter 10. The nation is on the move. They're waiting on the Lord. They're taking the land that God had given them. But in process, they had drawn the attention of some of the surrounding kings. Some of the kings of these surrounding people groups and cities who were fearful of what Israel might do to them and their cities next. So if you have your Bible there in Joshua chapter 10, we're going to read verses 1 through 15 and then kind of go back and talk about this event together. So Joshua chapter 10 verse 1 says this, Now King Adonai Zedek of Jerusalem Heard that Joshua had captured Ai and completely destroyed it, treating Ai and its king as he had Jericho and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were living among them. So Adonai, Zedek, and his people were greatly alarmed because Gibeon was a large city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all its men were warriors. "...therefore King Adonai Zedek of Jerusalem sent word to King Hoham of Hebron, King Piriam of Jarmuth, King Japhia of Lachish, and King Dibir of Eglon, saying, "'Come up and help me. We will attack Gibeon, because they have made peace with Joshua and the Israelites.' So the five Amorite kings, the king of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces, advanced with all their armies, besieged Gibeon, and fought against it. Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. Don't give up on your servants. Come quickly and save us. Help us, for all the Amorite kings living in the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua and all his troops, including all his best soldiers, came from Gilgal. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for I have handed them over to you. Not one of them will be able to stand against you. So Joshua caught them by surprise after marching all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. He defeated them in a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them throughout the ascent of Beth-Horan, and struck them down as far as Azka and Makeda. And they fled before Israel. The Lord threw large hailstones on them from the sky along the descent of Beth-Horan all the way to Azka, and they died. More of them died from the hail than the Israelites killed with the sword." And on the day that the Lord gave the Amorites over to the Israelites, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the presence of Israel. Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon over the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took its vengeance on its enemies. Isn't this written in the book of Jashar? So the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed its setting almost a full day there has been no day like it before or since when the Lord listened to a man because the Lord fought for Israel. And then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. What an incredible story. It must have been amazing to see, not just for the men of Israel, but for the other armies, for the people of the land, it must have been amazing to see the sun stand still. That's what we just read, is that Joshua, in order to finish the defeat of his enemies, asked the Lord to stop the sun, that the sun would stand still to give him enough daylight to finish the task, and he did. And yes, I believe this literally happened. I believe this was not some kind of eclipse. I don't believe this was some misperception or misconception. I believe that God literally caused it to be day longer and held the sun still. And I know maybe if you uh, are already thinking skeptically about this, you're like, well, how is that even possible? Because the sun's not the thing moving. The earth is the moving so did the earth stand still. And if the earth stood still, then wouldn't we just all fly off the planet? Hey, listen. I believe that God sent his one and only son, wrapped him in human flesh, he was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died a death on a cross, three days later, walked out of that grave alive and well. Because I believe that, yeah, I'm open to this. If Jesus can come back from the dead and bring life to all who believe in him, yeah, God can hold the sun or the earth or whatever still for a few hours and everything be okay. He's God. I believe this literally happened, and I believe it was an amazing sight to behold. It was God fighting on behalf of his people. It was God showing up and moving in the life of his people in an incredible way. And I think that we all have a desire to see something like that in our life, right? What would it look like for us to see God move that way in our life? Maybe not holding the sun literally in place, but what would it look like for God to move for us in our lives in such an incredible and powerful way, just like he did for the nation of Israel? How about this? What would it take to see God move in our lives in this powerful way? Well, first of all, let me just say this. There is no guarantee that you will ever see God do something as tangible As this in your life now I know that you can turn on TV there are channels on YouTube of people promising that you will see miracles and wonders and signs if you will send them a donation of 99.99 look I'm sure there are people who genuinely believe that they have unlocked the key to seeing God perform miracles in your life I believe those people are misguided I believe others are more than misguided. I believe that there are people out there who are willfully deceptive, tricking believers into thinking that they can force God's hand to make a miracle happen in their life. But here's the truth that I need you to hear this morning. There is no magic set of buttons. There is no specific actions. There is no memorized incantation of words that can force God's hand. There is nothing that we can do that forces God to do this. And people who tell you otherwise are either misinformed or willfully deceptive. God is not some heavenly vending machine that you can manipulate for your desires at your convenience. More than that. God himself, the one who created the Son and the one who held it in place for Joshua, will not be used by his people as a means to our own selfish ends. And make no mistake, much of what we see in many churches today is God being used as a tool or even a weapon for us to fulfill our goals, our dreams, and our desires. God will not be used as such. God is not your genie. God is not your vending machine. God is not your bulldog that you can sick on whoever you want. God is God. God will do what God pleases. And there is no set of magic button specific actions or memorized words that will force him to perform miracles in our life. However... I don't believe this means that we can do nothing to see God moves in our life. Well, What do I mean by that? Well, I don't believe that there's any set of magic buttons or words we can speak that will force God to move his hand. I believe that we can position ourselves in such a way that we can be ready to better hear his voice and see his hand when he does move in our lives. Again, doesn't mean that we force his hand. You may not see that quote-unquote miracle that you're looking for, but I believe that when we position ourselves properly, we are more apt to see and more able to see God when he does move. So I want to look back. A little more closely at this text here in chapter 10 and show you a few things that I think are important for us to put ourselves in a position to see God work and to see God move in our lives. And again, these are descriptive, not prescriptive. What I'm gonna share with you is descriptive of what Joshua did, not prescriptive of if you do this, this, and this, then this will happen. What that means is that these are principles and observations, not promises. And man, we need to get our head around that because so many people like to preach principles from scripture as if they were promises for scripture. And when things do not happen the way we want to see them happen, we think God has failed in his promise when he has not. It was just that the principle did not bear the fruit that you were aiming at. But this is descriptive, not prescriptive. These are principles and observations, not promises. Still, I think there is much for us to learn here. So I want to show you a few things. First, what Joshua did to help position himself to see the Lord move in his life is Joshua was waiting on the Lord in a place of worship. Now, you might not have noticed this right away, but it is here in the text. If you go back to verse 6 in chapter 10, this is what we read. Verse 6 says, Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. Now that is something that maybe does not mean much to you, but people in Joshua's time and even Israel today would understand the significance of Joshua being with the people in the camp at Gilgal. See, Gilgal was a special place for Joshua and the nation of Israel. Gilgal was the place that they first set up camp when the nation crossed from the desert through the Jordan River into the Promised Land. It was that first camp where they celebrated the first Passover in this new land. It was the place of prayer. It was the place of worship. It was the place where Joshua heard from the Lord what the next step is for his people. So I think one of the first things we see, one of the first principles we see in this text is that if we want to see God move in our lives, we must wait on the Lord in a place of worship. And it may be that one of the primary reasons we don't hear from the Lord, one of the reasons that we don't see him work in our life is because we are rarely found in a place of prayer and worship. With so much going on in our lives, with so much busyness to distract us, we are rarely in that position to see... The Lord move, And I believe that if you want to see the Lord move in your life, if you want to see God do something in your life, then you need to be waiting on him in a place of prayer and worship. And yes, I think at the least, this is church attendance. I'm going to say that unashamedly. I think that you need to be in church with the body of Christ, gathered together to worship together, to hear and respond to the word together, to pray together. I think that we see God move often in the presence of his people but I think that's the lowest bar for us to wait on the Lord in a place of prayer and worship. I think it's got to go well beyond that. I think that you, in your life, need to have private moments of worship, private moments of prayer, private moments of studying His Word, and to have them regularly. Wait on the Lord. Wait to hear from Him. Wait to see His hand. Secondly, I think we see here in the text, another principle, that when Joshua acted, he acted with integrity. Go back again to verse 6, because I think this one requires a little more background and a little more context for us to really understand. Look at verse 6 again. It says, Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, Don't give up on your servants. That's important. Come quickly and save us, help us, for all the Amorite kings living in the hill country have joined forces Against us. See, there's a reason that Gibeon refers to themselves as your servants. Matter of fact, what led the five Amorite kings to attack Gibeon was that they had made peace with Joshua. They had made peace and entered into a treaty with Joshua and the nation of Israel. We're not going to look at it right now, but if you have some time, go back one chapter to verse 9, and you will see where Joshua made peace with Gibeon, but he did so under false pretenses. See, the people of Gibeah came to Joshua afraid of what the nation of Israel would do to them, and instead of coming in a royal procession showing their might and power, they came in rags, they came in ruin, they were dirty and meager-looking, and they come to Joshua and say, Joshua, make a covenant with us for peace. We're not from this land, we're from another land, and we just want your protection after you conquer this land. And Joshua was like, well, hey, maybe. Right? How do I know you're not from this land? And they say, oh, we promise. And so Joshua makes a covenant with them. He signs a peace treaty with them, even though these are one of the very people that God wanted Joshua to drive out of the land. He made this covenant. He made it under false pretenses. And here's what I want you to see. And yet, despite that, despite shady Gibeon tricking Joshua and the people of Israel... When Joshua was called to act, he acted with integrity and kept his word. He had entered into a peace treaty with them. And you know what a peace treaty is. If, if one nation is attacked, the other one is going to be uh, there as an ally and vice versa. And so when Gibeon is attacked and they call out to Joshua and they said, Joshua, come help us. Help us, your servants. How easy would it have been for Joshua to say, well, you know what? You tricked me. This is on you. You know what? I would help you, but you really didn't do this the right way. I'm supposed to drive you out of the land anyway. I'm not coming to help. But no, Joshua acted with integrity. And so here's what I need you to understand. When we act with integrity, even when it seems to work against us, I believe we will see God work for us. When we act with integrity, even when that acting works against us, God will still work for us. See, our integrity displays the character of our God. God does not expect us to make these promises and covenants and treaties and alliances. But when we do, he expects us to keep our word. And Joshua chose to position himself as a man of integrity. And when he did... God honored that and moved on his behalf. Quickly, a third thing, that when Joshua responded, he didn't just respond with integrity, Joshua responded by giving his best. Now this one is right here in the text in front of us, it's plain. When Joshua responded, he responded with his best soldiers, and even he himself went to fight. Look at verse 7, it says, So Joshua "...and all his troops, including all his best soldiers, they came from Gilgal. So when Joshua came, he sent his best. When Joshua came, he went himself. And sometimes I think that we don't give our best. We tend to mail it in. And especially when it comes to God in our lives, we tend to give God what we have left over. At the end of a busy week, at the end of a month full of financial strain, when our schedules are packed and our energy is gone and our focus is elsewhere, we show up and half-heartedly give God what we have left. But see, God does not deserve what we have left. God deserves our best. And I think more specifically here, Joshua didn't just give his best to God. he, He gave his best to Gibeon. These shady people who had lured him in under false pretenses, he still brought his best. And I think that that's something that we need to struggle with in a world in which we are so easily and often overwhelmed by all that we have going on is that as people of integrity, we still need to give our best to those around us. I heard it put this way a long time ago when I was in children's church. When it comes to our priorities in life, if you want to have joy, you've got to follow J-O-Y, joy. It's Jesus and then others And then you. And that's the path to joy. And so here I think we see Joshua doing that. He honors God by being a man of integrity, giving his best. And then he puts the needs of Gibeon ahead as a man of integrity, giving his best. And his thoughts are not at all about himself. So here's what I'm telling you. If you want to see God move in your life, I believe you can position yourself to more clearly see his hand and hear his voice when you give your best. Don't just mail it in. Don't just mail it in. Don't save it for yourself. Give your best to Jesus. Give your best to others. But finally, and maybe most importantly, what we see Joshua do is put in some real effort here. This is my favorite part of the text. Go down to verse 9. It said, So Joshua caught them by surprise after marching all night from Gilgal. Now, now here's what you need to understand is that in verse eight, in between when Joshua hears the call and he starts the march to when he gets there in verse eight, he hears from the Lord and the Lord says, look, Joshua, I'm going to give the enemy over to your hands. You've already won the battle. And I think right there, in that moment, it would have been easy for Joshua to say, oh, I have faith in the Lord. He says that we're going to win, so we don't need to be in a rush. We don't need to be in a hurry. When we get there, we get there. Let's sleep in late. Let's take our time. But no, after Joshua has heard the promise in the Lord of verse 8, he still marches through the night to make it to the battle. He still is a man of integrity, he gives his best, he puts in some real effort. He says, let's huff it, let's go double time. And what you got to understand, guys, is this, is that faith is not an excuse to be lazy. Wanting to see God work, desiring to see God work, believing that God will work in your life is not an excuse for you to step back and do nothing. Faith is not an excuse to be lazy. Matter of fact, faith is motivation to work even harder. See, I think Joshua was encouraged to get to the battle because he knew he was going to win. He was marching through the night putting in real effort out of eager anticipation for what he was going to see the Lord do. If we believe the Lord, if we believe he's going to keep his word and keep his promises, if we believe that he is going to move and going to work, that's not an excuse to be lazy. That's like fishing in a stock pond. You don't, you don't have a stocked pond and then not fish in it because you know if you do, you'll catch fish. No, you go fish in that stocked pond because you know when you do, you will catch fish. Joshua put in the effort before the Lord moved. Look down at verse 11. Verse 11 says, As they fled, this is after the battle is, is turned, after they fled before Israel. The Lord threw large hailstones on them from the sky along the descent of Beth-Horon all the way to Aska, and they died. More of them died from the hail than the Israelites killed with the sword. See, in the end, it's clear. Yes, Joshua waited on the Lord in a place of worship. He acted with uh, integrity. He gave his best. He put in real effort. But at the end of the day, it was clear that this was the Lord who moved. This was the Lord who won the victory. So much so that the biblical author makes it clear here who killed the most enemy soldiers, and it wasn't Joshua and the sword. Now the thing here that you've got to understand is God could have done this anyway. God could have sent the hailstones anyway. God could have routed the five Amorite kings anyway. He could have done it without Joshua, but he didn't. He waited until Joshua did what Joshua did, and then the Lord did what he was going to do. Why didn't he do it on his own? Why did he wait? Well, because he chose to. Because he chose to wait on Joshua. Because he chose to see Joshua act and react, and then he stepped up to fight for Joshua. And I believe it's because he wanted his people to learn a couple of clear lessons. First... I think God wanted His people to know that He is powerfully in control. That when the hailstones came and the sun stood still, He wanted His people to know that He was in control. And I think what you need to know, if you're waiting to see God move and work in your life, is that God is still powerfully in control. When the sun stands still, And even when it doesn't, he is still in control. And we know. That he is actively right now working all things together for the good of those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. And so, what I need to hear, I need you to hear me say, and I need you to learn and let this truth sink into your heart is that even when you don't see God moving, even when you don't see God working on your behalf, he is. He is still powerfully in control when the sun stands still and when it doesn't. You may not see it, you may not understand it, but we know once and for all that God is working together all the things of this life for our good and for His glory. And the greatest proof of that is the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, we just got done with this series, right? That if He has freely given us Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins, as a gifted righteousness we could not earn, if he has freely given us his son, how will he, with him, not freely give us all other things? The proof that you need that God is working for you, even when you can't see it, is in the cross and the empty tomb. God is powerfully in control when the sun stands still, and even when it doesn't. But I think the second thing that he wanted his people to learn is that faith is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. See, I don't think Joshua did anything here that made God move. I don't think uh, Joshua did anything here that earned the right to see God hold the Son in place. See, our faith, the Christian faith, is opposed to earning. What we believe the message of the gospel is, is that there is nothing that you could do to earn a right standing with God. There is nothing you could do to earn his love. There's nothing you could do to earn one step into heaven's gate. But earning and effort are not the same thing. See, while our faith may be opposed to earning something, that we are entitled to something based on what we've done, It is not opposed to effort. And one of the hard truths of the Christian life is, man, you got to put in effort. Just because you know Jesus as your Savior, just because He's forgiven you of your sin, just because He's gifted you righteousness doesn't mean that you just sit back and then wait for this life to be over no we continue moving forward we continue to grow we continue to pursue righteousness we continue to pursue holiness we continue to pursue the salvation of our friends and our families and our coworkers we continue to pursue the kingdom of god expanding throughout our schools our workplaces our communities our nations we continue to put in the effort you know i heard a pastor say it like this one time, and I thought it was good. He says, you know, what I figured out is sometimes you have to work like it depends on you and pray like it depends on God, because it does. Maybe God has you in the position that you're in right now, and he's waiting to see you respond with integrity. He's waiting to see you give your best. He's waiting to see if you're going to wait on him in that place of worship. He's waiting to see you put in effort. And when you do, then he'll move. And maybe, maybe it'll be through miraculous means, or maybe it'll be that God says, see, when you follow me and follow these principles, I'm still in control and things are going to work out, whether supernaturally or not, whether the sun stands still or whether it doesn't. Because the Christian life, if you want to see God move, if you want to see God come through, you're not going to force his hand. But you can put yourself in a position to see it happen. So I'd love to talk with you about that. If that's something you're still struggling through, I'd love to have that conversation. You can reach out to us right now online. We have people who are waiting. I would be happy to talk to you personally if we can kind of work through this together. But what I want you to know today is that God is for you. That there's nothing in this world that you can do that would make God love you less. There's nothing in this world you can do to make God love you more. And just because you can't see what he's doing doesn't mean that he's not doing something. And that that means you need to keep moving, keep trusting, and keep putting in the effort. Let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you for the time that you've given us to be together. God, I pray that your word would move in our hearts, that we would find ourselves more often in a place of worship. God, that we would be men and women of integrity, that when we think of the priorities in our life, we would give our best to you, that we would give our best to others, and that we would continue to put in the effort to seek your face, to follow your will, to grow in our faith. And God, when we do, I pray that you would move on our behalf for us and that you would give us eyes to see it. And even when we can't, that you would give us hearts to trust. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.